Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Gina Davis is one of the great Hollywood stars of her generation and now the author of a new memoir, Dying of Politeness. The two-time Academy Award winner and renowned advocate for women's representation in film joined us last week to share stories from her remarkable life. She was in conversation with Hannah McInnes. So, uh, of course, you're also an author now. Uh, And the title and this cover, um, it is obviously a wonderful cover with you sitting there having tea with a a relatively friendly looking bear. Um, (laughs) It's called Dying of Politeness, and that feeds into this image that we see. So while we're going to go on to talk about, you know, the fact that this uh, notion of, of of being incredibly polite um, goes through the whole book. Uh, just explain to us at the start why you chose that title and this bear you're giving tea to on your cover. Right. Well, I wanted the cover photo to humorously reflect the title. And so I, I was trying to think of all kinds of scenarios where you might die politely. And, uh, and so this one is that uh, a bear has come to, <laughs> to kill me. But I, before he does that, uh, let me give you some tea and maybe a, a slice of cake. <laughs> and so that's what it's uh, supposed to symbolize. But I called it that because, uh, well, there's, there was one very specific real life incident where I, I nearly died uh, of politeness. And then I realized it was sort of a politeness was a through line through uh, a lot of my life coloring, you know, how, how I reacted to, uh, to many situations. I'm trying to be, it's not even just polite, but trying to be pleasing and, and, uh, you know, make sure that people like me. The most important thing was for people to like me and, and think I was no trouble and, you know, I'm all good. I have no needs and that kind of thing. So uh, that's, that's why I called it that. And that was very much because of the way that you were brought up, wasn't it? That was because of your parents, where you lived, and their very much their ethos to just be polite and not put anyone out in any way right. at all. Yes, yes, exactly. My parents were extremely uh, self-effacing, and, and it was incredibly important to them and to teach me to pretty much not have any needs, you know, that you... you it would it would uh, be impolite to need anything from somebody. Like for example, if I was at a friend's house and uh, and the mom is handing me an already poured glass of water, I had to say, "Oh no, thank you. I'm not I'm not thirsty," just because you can't uh, display any needs. And I mean, despite that. Um, you know, people might think, well, at odds with that kind of in- incredible sort of self-effacing politeness is this knowledge. As soon as you learn, you say people had jobs, you knew what you wanted to do with your life. And your parents yes. told you um, at the age of three, you just knew yes. I want to be in the movies, even though you yes. were shy and quiet. And as we've said, hugely polite. This right. was the career you knew you wanted. Yes. I mean, my my fondest wish pretty much the entire time I was growing up was to take up less space. You know, I was always very tall and, uh, you know, I, oh, I just wanted to hide and I didn't want people to look at me, but I was determined to pick a job where 
you guarantee that people are going to look at you. And the only thing I can think of uh, to explain that is that maybe I thought if I could pretend to be other people, I could I could live a different life. You know, I could actually have emotions or express feelings or do interesting uh, and important things instead of being so meek all the time. Mm. And just to stay with your family for, for this brief moment, uh, you say my family was oddball at the start mm. of a thing. What do you mean by that? Uh, we were just, we lived different than uh, our neighbors or our friends. My parents heated the house with a wood stove and uh, we didn't have a shower. And uh, my brother and my older brother and I had to share the bath water on Saturday nights. You know, one, one would be able to go first and have the hotter, cleaner version of the water. And uh, our house was full of random antiques, like none of the chairs matched at the dining table, which was looked very funny. And my dad also collected axes, uh, antique axes. And they he had about 500, and they were all over the house. They were under the dining room table. They were in my bedroom. They were just stacked everywhere. And so it was a strange-looking house. And one of the things that I found very, very touching is, although... Um, as you as you say, and it comes throughout the book, your parents were these incredibly polite people who never wanted to put anyone out. You know, when they came to visit you on set, they were incredibly polite. But your mother was um, someone who, um, um, an inc- incredible character um, yeah. in your in your life, an incredible support. And yes. her politeness didn't stop her from being absolutely adamant that you would go to college, that you would succeed. Mm. And she gave you this advice, you know, not to have children until too late in case it hampered your career. Uh, Right, right. Uh, Once I was married for the first time, she made a point of saying, you know, you probably don't want to have children right away, which is such the opposite of what you expect a mom to say. You know, I can't wait to have grandchildren. Why are you going to give me a grandchild? But that was not the case. Mm. She, I think, you know, I think it might have been that she had few opportunities or no opportunities to pursue anything in her life. And, and she was determined that I would be free to, you know, pursue whatever I wanted. And you were determined too. And I mean, there is so much life to fill in, but A, we don't have as many hours as I would like. And also, uh, I need to make, leave some time for the audience who I'm sure have many questions themselves. But uh, you went to college and then decided that modeling in New York was the way through. And and it was. Um, but what right. I loved reading about was these many moments in which you were living this fake it till you make it concept long yes. before, as you say, you heard that that was a thing. Uh, tell us about that wonderful sort of eagerness to, to get there just meant you would stop at nothing. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I studied acting in college. It was always my goal to be in movies. But nobody told me that once I graduated, I should probably move to L.A. Uh, and, and all my friends were going to New York to try to get in place. So I went with them. Uh, but I came up with a scheme of how I might get cast in movies because at that time, Christy Brinkley was a supermodel. And she, was, she had appeared in a couple of movies. And I thought, okay, so if I just become a famous model, 
they'll just offer me parts. So this could be the way, because, you know, it's so much easier to become a supermodel. Uh, so, uh, but that was, that was my plan. And so when I got to New York, I had a list of the top agencies, the five top agencies, and went to them one by one. And I was, you know, the first one I would tell my real height and my real age, which is six feet and 22. And they said, you're too tall and too old. Okay. The next one, I was 21 and 5'11 and a half. No, you're too tall and too old. Uh, but by the time I got to the agency I signed with, I was, I was 5'10 and 18. And I'm not saying that's why they <laughs> hired me, but, uh, but at least they didn't say I was too tall and too old. And you just, yes, you just had this idea that, you know, there were moments, weren't there, in your career when you, when you, when you had, for example, had to say, yes, I've done this. I'm just waiting for the photos to come or I've done yes. this, that or the other. And it, and it worked. <laughs> yes, it totally worked. Uh, I, I, I wasn't shy about kind of padding the resume. Uh, I, I went to Italy for a brief time to, to you know, sometimes they send you over there to see if you're going to become successful over there. And I wasn't getting jobs and I wasn't. And then finally I got booked for uh, hand modeling in the Italian Vogue magazine. And I said, well, you know, that's something. And, uh, they, once, once I got there, they thought my nails were too long. So someone like chomped them off. And then the editor said, now they're too short. We can't. So it ended up that there were, there were eight pages of just my wrist because it was a watch story. And so, so, I'm like, oh, I have nothing to go home with. But when I got there, I told everybody that I had eight pages coming out soon in Italian Vogue. I just left out that it was part of my wrist. And, uh, and eventually, and people, I started getting more jobs. And sometimes people say, Hey, did you get those pictures? Said, no, the magazine hasn't come out yet. Europe. Well, you know, go figure. Uh, but yeah, I would lie about anything. <laughs> Well, as I say, I mean, it worked and actually really looking back, couldn't have worked any more extraordinarily because your first film was alongside Dustin Hoffman, directed by Sidney Pollock. Um, you call it a masterclass in filmmaking and the best yes. job in the world. I yes. mean, tell us about that experience uh, and how yeah. it sort of informed you and, and changed you. And it was just yeah. a dream. Yeah, it was extraordinary. They, The casting director for that movie had called model agencies to see if they had any models who could act because they wanted the character to be very attractive or whatever. But um, And so I got to audition. It was my first audition for a movie. And I, you know, I didn't think anything about it. Obviously, I'm not going to get as my... First audition, I'm going to cast in a movie with Dustin Hoffman, but uh, but I did. They did pick me, and uh, it was astounding. But but also, I have to say, I had a little bit of yeah. But I mean, that's what was supposed to happen. <laughs> this this is exactly what was supposed to happen. But because I was so polite, perhaps you could call it, I didn't ask any questions when I finally got on the set. Even though I had no idea, you know, how to do anything. I'd never been on a movie set, but I didn't ask any questions. I assumed that everybody came all day, every day. I was, you know, we're in this thing all together. So I'm sure we all come. And so I showed up every day at 6 a.m. 
And I knew some days they put makeup on me and some days not. But I also didn't know that you don't sit next to the director. He's <laughs> busy directing and, you know, the actors sit over there and the director and the producers sit over here. But I didn't know that. So I would get a chair and carry it over and sit right next to Sidney Pollack all day. And, uh, but, you know, he didn't mind. I think they all assumed I was there all the time because I wanted to learn, you know, and which I did, but uh, that wasn't why I was there. I thought it, I was supposed to be there. And also you got, I mean, Dustin Hoffman was a fantastic um, teacher and mentor, mm. and he gave you so much um, advice. I mean, one part that sticks out, um, perhaps you could tell uh, his very, very uh, important advice that then went on to inform something very shortly afterwards involving yeah, uh, a right. name that people might be familiar with. Yes, yes. So uh, he all day long, he'd be thinking of tips to give me for this career he was sure I had, I would have. And uh, one of them was, you know, never sleep with your co-star. It's, it's a bad idea. It's, it can get messy. Just, just don't do that. So here's what you say. He didn't just say, don't do that. He said, this is what you say. You say, if, if you get proposition by your co-star, you say, oh, I would love to. You're very attractive, but I would hate to ruin the sexual tension between us. And uh, so I squirrel that away. Okay, I squirrel that away. And then um, not that long after that, uh, before I had done any other movies or anything, I was out in L.A. Uh, my model agency sent a couple of us models out there. And the agent knew Jack Nicholson. And every night for a week, we had dinner with Jack Nicholson sort of ram randomly. And then one night I got home to the hotel and uh, there was a message. Gina, please call Jack Nicholson. Why do you I call him? Okay. Hello, Mr. Nicholson. This is Gina, the model. How are you? And he said, hey, Gina, when's it going to happen? Said, oh, well, first of all, how did I not know what this was going to be about? You know, but, uh, but then I thought, I know what to say. And so I said, well, Mr. Nicholson, Jack, uh, I have an idea that we are going to work together someday, I'm quite sure. And I would hate to have ruined the sexual tension between us. And he was like, oh, man, where did you get that? Oh, my God. But it worked. It's so fabulous. <laughs> oh, it is. It's a fabulous story. One of so many fabulous stories. But uh, surprisingly, one turns the page in, in your book as you turn quite a sort of a page in your life, because despite this wonderful opportunity, you then go to live in, in L.A. But you, you know, even though we might think you're sort of living the dream, a, a sort of dark period descends. Oh, well, yes. So I moved to LA with a job, which was, which was great. A TV series called Buffalo Bill. And, uh, I was a regular on that. But then we went on hiatus and I didn't know if it was going to come back or not. And, uh, so I, for about a year, I didn't have work and I had the biggest, uh, bout of depression, you know, to where I wasn't getting dressed. I didn't go buy groceries and, it was, it, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty dark time because it had seemed like everything's happening for, I was in a movie, I was in a TV show. And then 
nothing. And uh, it was pretty, yeah, I, I, I was very, very depressed. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's just, it's so interesting all the way through because there's just, I I suppose, the ups and downs and um, even for the people living the dream and having these extraordinary roles, there's always these moments in between and and never quite knowing but but you do continue to to get some extraordinary roles before we come to the sort of wonderful sort of punch the air brilliant moments uh, in your career and people will know kind of instantly what I'm talking about there are some you know not so so great moments you you talk about in the book you talk about some sort of moments of sexual harassment that are just part part of the core that just happen all the time and even though you always want to feel more equipped the next time somehow that doesn't happen right when something happens to you and you think well next time i'll know what to do you but but then something different happens you know that that you so you you feel constantly not at least this is what i felt was constantly not prepared for the kinds of things that would come up uh in my in my life and uh, and a lot of it had to do with um you know, sexism or sexual inappropriateness. And, uh, yeah, that, that on a very early movie that I was auditioning for, I was sort of the director at the audition behaved incredibly inappropriately. Uh, and, uh, and I, I knew that I didn't want to do what he was, what he was talking about. And, um, but I didn't have any experience or vocabulary for, Saying no, I'm I'm just not going to do that or leaving, you know. Uh, so, and then you think, well, next time I'm going to say something, but it's it's always different and, and always hard to deal with. Do you think that things have changed? I mean, we've ha- we've had such a significant movement in the s- sense of Me Too. Um, do you look back at that time and think, oh, thank goodness things are better now, or or do you feel? There's a still a long way to go. No, I absolutely uh, see that things are better now. Uh, for example, uh, there's no agent who's going to send their client to a hotel room again. Uh, at least, you know, for now, people are uh, very, you know, aware that that's that's an inappropriate venue to audition. So things things have gotten better. But you know, this kind of stuff doesn't just vanish because if you're in the privacy of a room or something with somebody the idea that there's been a movement to protect people you know if you if you think you can get away with something and not get busted 
Um, and you're that type of person, you know, I'm, I'm sure it probably still happens. Mm. And the other um, moment that you describe that is quite shocking to read, I, I feel, is, is sort of sits alongside um, harassment of a different form, but just um, extraordinary uh, exchange when you're working with Bill Murray uh, on Quick mm. Change mm-hmm. and, and looking back at the way uh, he treated you. I, I just wonder if you could describe that scene and also why you tell the story because of an interview you can watch on YouTube afterwards that just shows how completely at odds your behaviour, you know, is with what's what's the reality. Right, right. Well, something really inappropriate happened at the audition. Uh, again, um, when I came in the room, it was in a hotel suite, but there were, there were a couple other uh, gentlemen in the room. But the second I walked in the room, Bill Murray said, hey, you have to try this thing, the thumper. Have you ever tried the thumper? And I'm like, no, I don't know what is that. And he said, it's a massage device. And it was this huge, big thing with handles on it. And I was like, no, 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 thank you. And I keep trying to sit down uh, with the other people. And uh, he's like, no, 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 you have to do it. You have to do it. It's so amazing. You have to try. And he was so insistent. I mean, I was really very getting close to saying, no, I'm not doing it, you know, but of course I never would have been able to, but I realized he's never giving up on this and the other people aren't going to tell him to stop. And, you know, and so uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the, I didn't even enter my mind to just leave or, or something. And uh, uh, so I ended up, perching on the edge of the bed and letting him put this thing on my back. And uh, and it was just the weirdest thing, but it turned out later that I found out I had just won an Oscar, a supporting Oscar, and uh, he was worried, before they hired me, he was worried that I might think I'm all that or I'm superior to him because I have an Oscar and he doesn't have something. And so he wanted to make sure that he could put me in my place. Uh, and making me do something I did, I really didn't want to do was his way of finding out if he could control me, I guess. And then later, he, it just the, the, the anger that you witness is, feels yes. unforgivable. Yeah. So it was the very first day of shooting on that movie. We're in New York. We're going to shoot in a, uh, an intersection in Manhattan, you know, very busy, uh, huge set. And there's hundreds of people behind the line watching and, there's hundreds of people in the scene and they come to tell me that they're ready. And I said, great, I'll be be right there. They're just bringing me part of my costume. And they said, yeah, wait here for the costume. That's fine. And uh, so maybe 30 seconds go by and Bill Murray, the door slams open and he comes storming in, in a complete rage uh, and uh, starts swearing uh, uh, unbelievably, what the F are you doing? Get the F out there. Move it, move it. And and walked behind me, you know, an inch away, screaming in my ear the whole way, into the intersection and onto the set, screaming, screaming at me. And uh, stand there, roll it. Uh, and, uh, and I was literally like, I had no lines of that scene, thank God. But it was, uh, it was horrifying. And I, I later realized that he did that a lot. 
he would choose different people to do that on as a sort of a power play to remind them he was, you know, above them or something. And, uh, and, and I saw, I watched him do this one time to somebody, some poor person. And uh, when he was done, he turned around with this sort of self-satisfied look. And uh, I said, I'm just waiting for you to do that to me again. And uh, he said, oh, I don't have to. You've behaved since then. Goodness me. So, Goodness me. Well, the, the, the happy story that comes out of that um, really sort of unpalatable behavior is that while you say maybe there is still more change that needs to happen to the industry, you you said you changed. Everything changed because I mean, it's just a wonderful chapter. I've got goosebumps really just thinking about this change that came in the form of... Susan oh, Sarandon, wasn't it? Yes, Susan Sarandon, not Dumb and Louise, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that movie really changed my life. And and meeting Susan Sarandon and working with her utterly changed my life. So, uh, you know, I, I had tried to get cast in that movie for a year, and I finally did get cast as Thelma. And there was a day that I was going to meet with Ridley Scott, the director, and Susan, and we were going to just go through the script casually and see if there was any little changes anybody wanted to make or whatever. And so I have a couple of things I might say if I have the nerve, but I'm going to qualify everything by saying, this is probably a stupid idea. You know what? Don't even do this. But what about... Anyway, so that was my plan of how I was going to present my ideas. And we sit down... And like on page one, Susan says, I think we should just cut this line here, my line. We don't need that. And it, it sounds crazy, but I had never been in the presence of a woman who says what she thinks without apologizing for her existence, you know, beforehand. And we went through the whole thing for a couple of hours and I was just like, what? Am I watching? This is unbelievable. And so the whole movie was like that. The whole experience was learning, being in the presence of how she moved through the world, which was utterly new to me, that a woman can just say what she thinks, not be confrontational, just, yeah, I want to do this and I want to do that. And the world doesn't end, uh, you know, uh, other people don't melt or... Uh, go crazy. It's all normal. So, yeah. So, uh, it really, it gave me a really clear goal that I wanted to be more like her. I mean, it's wonderful the way you describe it. We should should mention you, you said you know you were incredibly keen for the role. I think um, you, you your agent called Ridley Scott every week fifty two times for a year, yes, um, yes. which is you know yeah, lovely but, for the rest yeah. of us to know how you know how sort of I guess well unbelievably earned and wanted it was. Yes. Oh God. Yes. Because when I read it, I was like, asked my agent, "Hey, can I get audition for this?" And no, it's already cast. And then, oh, but my agent decided uh, at my urging that he was going to call Ridley Scott every week to just remind him that I, in case anything happened, I was very interested. And so uh, it stretched out over a year with different pairs of women coming in and out and different directors. Ridley was, was just the producer in the beginning. 
So finally, when he decided he was going to direct it, he said, yes, I will meet with Gina. She's been very persistent. And so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, persistence that paid off. And I mean, yes, you described that relationship uh, with Susan in such a wonderful way. You call it a kind of reprogramming, daily badass tutoring that she gave you. Yes. And it's clearly also just a wonderful um, atmosphere because of that relationship. Uh, There are so many stories in the book. I would love to talk about them all. I don't think I'm going to have time. But some of the ones that I so enjoyed hearing was, for example, even though, you know, you clearly prepare and it comes um, the whole way through, comes clearly across how how much each role means to you, how hard your preparation is. But at one point in Thelma and Louise, you have an interesting way of preparing, which involves uh, beer and vodka. Oh, yes, yes. So, uh, yes, I had deeply prepared to play this part, but there was one scene where we're driving around and, uh, and the direction says, Thelma laughs uncontrollably, hysterically. And I was like, uh, how do you do that? I mean, even if I can think of the funniest possible thing, because nothing funny was happening in this scene, uh, it's not going to make, I'm not going to be able to laugh over and over and over for uh, all the takes. And so I was really thinking about it. I finally decided, I wonder what would happen if I got a little tipsy before shooting it. And so I asked the props guys, could put some like alcohol in my trailer? And they put uh, some beer in, in my refrigerator and, uh, and a bottle of vodka. And so when it was, we were getting ready to shoot the scene, I went, back to my trailer and I did a couple of shots of vodka and drank a beer and uh, went to the set and I got in the car and Susan was already there and I went to lean over to tell her what I'd done and I couldn't stop laughing. I was so, I thought it was hilarious and it lasted for every take. I Every take I would think about how I had the secret that nobody knew. <laughs> and But then I had to go to bed after that. <laughs> I couldn't shoot for the rest of the day. Uh, I had to go lay down in my trailer. Oh, it's wonderful. So many things that having read give, you know, this wonderful film a, a whole, you know, sh- a whole new meaning and, and cast a light over it, particularly, for example, in another story you, you talk about, um, your role in the casting uh, of a certain um, well, should we say very attractive man who ended up um, playing? Well, you tell us the story, the wonderful yes. story of casting Brad Pitt. Yes. Well, they asked me to read with four different candidates they had uh, selected to be to play JD, and uh, of course, and so there I was with Ridley and the casting director, and one by one they came in the room and read with me and. Um, each one was handsome and very talented. And I was thinking, you know, any one of these guys, I really won't care. And then the fourth one uh, was Brad Pitt. And he was so charismatic and incredibly talented. I mean, his his audition was so far, far superior to anybody else, I thought. And, uh, and so then Ridley and the casting director are talking and uh, and I'm trying to listen. Are they going to bring up the last one? And then and then finally they said, "Oh, why, Gina? What's what's what were your thoughts?" And I said, "The blonde one." And uh, and so the title is uh, of the chapter is the blonde one. And he did end up getting cast. Of course, Ridley loved him also. So uh, 
Yeah, he was amazing. He was amazing. And the other uh, poor men who walked away without the role were, were pretty significant in themselves. Yes, right. So, like I said, they all blended t- together. They all had brown hair and whatever. So I called them the brunettes. And uh, I was once on a plane uh, back to home uh, from Geneva uh, randomly, and the flight attendants all met me at the door of the plane and said, guess who you're sitting next to? George Clooney. And I said, for once saying the right thing at the right time, I said, guess who he's sitting next to? Uh, and so I went and sat down. He was just as warm and gregarious and wonderful as he would hope that he would be. And then uh, we're talking and he says, you know what? I hate Brad Pitt. I was like, wait a minute, no, you don't. I read that he's like your best friend or something. He said, no, no, I hate him because he got the part in Thelma Louise. I said, oh, did you want that part? And he said, couldn't you tell when I read with you? And I was like, he was one of the brunettes uh, who all blended together. And I was too polite. I, sh- I mean, he would have laughed if I said, Dude, I didn't remember you at all. He would have just cracked up. But I said, oh, 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 yes, I do remember. Yes, you read very well. I could tell your passion was, you know. So it was uh, George Clooney and Grant Show and Mark Ruffalo were the three brunettes. Three brunettes who just, you know, blended. Just those three. Um, but they were all good. I did say they were all handsome and, and very talented. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, luckily, they've all had pretty good careers. They've all made out They've okay. all been yes. okay. Um, the, the, you know, you say you knew the script was extraordinary, but you didn't know it would touch this nerve. Um, you know, it is still one of the most watched, talked about, most iconic of films and particularly for the way is it sort of empowered uh, women I think I said earlier you know the moments where I want to punch the air which is what that film does and you talk really interestingly in the book about why you feel that is you know the ending is so significant I think that it's not a spoiler if you are here and you haven't seen it then I'm sorry but you might know what happens at the end but, but yes, I mean, I wonder if you could describe why you think it had that impact, and particularly on women. Right, right. Yeah, I, like you said, we had no clue that it would cause a big, you know, reaction and strike a nerve the way it did. Um, and and I think it's because, you know, the ending is a metaphor for us getting away, us retaining control of our lives. You know, we we go on this trip where we gradually take complete control of our fate and make horrific mistakes along the way, no, no question, but at least there are mistakes in our decisions. And at the end, when we're in a position where we would be absolutely forced to relinquish control of our lives, we decide not going to do it. And, uh, you know, it's obviously it's an extreme way that we find to um, to make sure that we stay in charge of our fate. But I think I think that's why it really spoke to women because initially I I thought how is it that women are coming out of this movie where we kill ourselves going yeah! <laughs> and uh, and I think it I think it was that and and also we give and gave women so few opportunities to feel inspired by female characters you know whereas 
men in almost any movie they watch, they can identify with with uh, one of the male characters. And but uh, so that was why it was very unique. And you say that it was since that moment that you then felt very strongly about choosing roles with women in the audience in mind, right. but right. but not creating a role model. You say in that yes. sense, in inverted commas. Right. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I really uh, felt this reaction because if someone recognized me from that movie, it was really different. Uh, and so I, I realized that about, about women thirsting and craving those kinds of roles. And so I thought, I am going to really keep the women in the audience in mind when I choose a part. Like, what are they going to think of my character? And yes, and I explain in the book that I didn't mean that I wanted to play role models. And I hate that term anyway, because role models have to be, you know, virtuous and exemplary and uh, if you think about Thelma Louise, I mean, we're not exactly um, role models, but uh, but that became my uh, my goal. Yes, as I said, a, a, a lot of wonderful stories, so many roles um, to describe and to describe the context in when, in which you played them. Um, but one that you move on to talk about is, of course. Um, your role in A League of Their Own. And particularly interesting is your description of when these journalists turned up. I mean, you talk about, um, you know, you're, you you talk about being a, a little furious to find that Tom Hanks is certainly gets the gets the um, name of being the nicest person ever to work with, perhaps not you. But these journalists turn up and, you know, you deign to tell them that uh, you're a feminist and their reaction is, well, kind of shock and awe. Right. Right. Yes. Every interviewer who came to the set to interview me or whoever uh, asked, would you say this is a feminist movie? Like kind of like, of course, you, you know, I'm just I'm going way out on a limb and I'm actually saying the word feminist because at that time, people, well, a lot of people might not know, but 30 years ago, the word feminist was, was poison. It was like everybody, you know, it was always, I'm not a feminist, but I believe women should have equal rights, you know, which is what a feminist is. But, uh, so, uh, so they would ask me and I would say, yes, what? You think it's a feminist movie? Yes, yes, it is. And they were so shocked. And then they would say, and this is like very universal with people that came to the set. They would say, so does that mean that you are a feminist? And I said, yes, I am. And they were stunned. They couldn't believe it. They would say, are you saying, I put that in the article? It's okay to say that you said you were a feminist? Like, I'm just checking for your sake uh, because, you know, we're worried about your <laughs> future if you say you're a feminist out loud. And so... Uh, it was kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yes. It, it, thank goodness. Well, as you say, a lot might not have changed in certain places. I think that has definitely changed. And yes. uh, we can yes. pr- proudly call many films um, feminist and, and say that, you know, you can proudly say that of, of yourself. I mean, um, yes. one of the uh, things you, you talk about kind of nearing the end of the book, uh, which turns into a, a great story, uh, but starts off. I suppose, sort of disappointingly in what happened 
post 40, which I think is, you know, I hope is still a very young age. But, you know, yeah. you talk about your you, you describe yourself as being devastated to find that right. the roles sort of stopped coming. Um, they sort of dried up or at least good roles. You know, um, uh, I could I could start playing the mother of the important person. But uh, but I was stunned. You know, I had heard uh, that. Everybody said that um, women uh, over 40, you know, when you when you reach your 40s, you start working much, much less. And I thought, well, that's going to be fixed by the time I'm 40. And also, I get to play all these extraordinary roles. So obviously, it won't happen to me. And uh, and then it did. As soon as I had a four in front of my age, uh, I got offered much, much less. And uh, and it was it was stunning. I mean, I had gotten spoiled playing so many fabulous characters and now having to wait, I waited three years uh, at one point for uh, two. And then I got Stuart Little and uh, I said, Oh, okay. But then it just, it just uh, became apparent that the, the phenomenon that I had heard about had also happened to me. And uh, it was, you know, it was devastating because Acting is what I live for. Uh, it's my it's my thing. It's my joy. It's my identity, and to have it taken away um, almost utterly was uh, was devastating. Mm. It did inspire you to do something. Not many people would suddenly say, "Okay, well, you know, the roles are dried up. I'm therefore going to go and um, become." Uh, get very heavily into archery. Um, I mean, the thing that the thing that gives that away is that we don't have time to talk about the extraordinary stunts that you've done throughout these films that you've been making. And, you know, you and Samuel L. Jackson, I think, beneath the ice. I mean, extraordinary. People can read these uh, sort of feats of daring do that you've been doing. Um, yes. So I suppose that feeds into this character that says, OK, um, you know, discrimination because I'm above 40. I'm going to go and try my hand at this sport. Yes, it, it wasn't at all because, well, if they're not going to cast me, I'm going to take up, uh, very seriously take up a sport. It was really because I had learned all these skills for various movies that uh, that I had. And I had been used to thinking of myself as completely not athletic. And suddenly I was like kind of good at all these sports that I took up. So I decided I'm going to find something I can compete in, in real life and find out if I re how much, uh, athletic ability do I, do I have that I didn't know about? And I just happened to see archery on TV and thought that could be, that's a great looking sport. Maybe that would be the one that I'm good at. So, um, I take everything too far and became utterly obsessed with it. And at 41, uh, yeah, I took it up and, uh, Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. You say you saw it on TV and it kind of 
that's not the thing that I suppose informs what you go on to do, is it? But this idea, you know, we, it is a cliche, but for a reason that something you see someone doing. I mean, you probably didn't see a woman doing it. I don't know. Um, right. But in terms of what we see on the screen and just what a huge impact that can have on what we feel we can do. So, so for example, obviously talking about gender here, if we see women in roles in films, in on television, it can have, uh, I think, a, a really profound impact on what we feel we can go on to do. And I, I think that that, um, I, you know, really interested to hear sort of what inspired you to set up your foundation and to try and make sure that, you know, women can see themselves on screen more and more. Right, right. Well, it, the initial goal was to change what kids see first, because when my daughter was a toddler and I started watching preschool shows or, you know, videos for kids, I was stunned to immediately notice that there were far more male characters than female characters in what we're showing kids in the 21st century. And I was like, surely we should be showing kids that boys and girls share the sandbox from minute one. And that's how I decided that I wanted to try to change that and, and try to make uh, move it, the needle toward parody in what's made for little kids. So uh, so that's what I focused on first. But, um, you know, if I go present the data to a, to a studio, they make kids stuff, they make everything, they have a TV station, you know, uh, a network. And so I'm hitting all of the points when I meet with them. And, uh, and it was... I actually happened upon the exact right approach to try to make this change because I knew that on screen, the lack of female characters was unconscious bias. And I thought, okay, so if I get the data and the numbers and present it to them privately, directly, instead of trying to educate the public or something, I can get meetings with these folks and, uh, and so I did, and I said, I'm never going to bust you. I'm never going to say they made a movie that didn't have enough females. But what do you think now that you know these numbers? And everyone was appalled. Everybody making kids entertainment was horrified that they were leaving out that many girls. And so the numbers have uh, have very, very dramatically changed now Uh in the time since the time that we've been doing this, so it's very exciting. And and what what have you seen? Because you've you've seen the numbers of women on screen doing various things change, and mm-hmm. that's not just where it ends, is it? That that has an effect, a ripple effect on people doing other jobs. Right. Well, it's it's the whole thing. It's uh, as you had said earlier, uh, images are incredibly powerful. And you judge your value by seeing yourself reflected or not in the, in the public uh, culture. And so if, uh, if girls see women doing interesting and important things like being a, a forensic scientist, for example, uh, they'll say, wait, wait a minute. I could do that. That's really interesting. And things explode for women once there's characters that do it. And also, by the way, and boys get used to seeing women doing something. And so that becomes normalized for them too. Oh, it's very normal to have a woman boss. It's very normal for a woman to be able to do this 
this job that we thought only men could do. And so it's, you know, it's really beneficial and important to, to all of us when we could see a wealth of, I'm talking about all underrepresented segments of our society, not just, uh, not just gender. So I need to move on to audience questions. Goodness me, I do, because I've got uh, um, not that long left. But I feel I'd, I'd love to know, I mean, um, you say you always take something and take it on to the absolute full, uh, you know, with, with the sport, with your foundation, and now you've written a memoir. What's next? Oh, God. Oh, what's my next thing I take too far? Well, or, I mean, you said take too far. I would say passion. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, you know, we're approaching on Halloween, and I actually have an obsession with pumpkin carving. I consider myself more or less a master pumpkin carver. So, you know, this is where my head is at right now. Well, yes, you're right. Perhaps that's what we should have had behind us. So let yeah. me um, let me ask uh, uh, of some of the questions. And thank you yes. very much for, for um, sending them in uh, to us. So an anonymous attendee says, Hi, Gina, who has inspired you the most and what inspired you to write the book? Uh, well, Susan Sarandon inspired me the most. But, uh, but I had an aunt, Gloria, when I was a kid, who was the only person on either side of the family who, you know, wore beautiful suits and wore her hair in a French twist and she had a profession and uh, she'd been divorced. And so I was like, wow, you know, she dazzled me and made me think that I could have a life kind of like hers, not getting divorced, but, you know, uh, having a profession. Um, so that was, that was inspiring. And as far as getting inspired to write the book, I, I'd always kind of thought about it and had even made notes here and there along, along the way. But when I, it was when I finally realized what the theme was going to be, the theme of the book being that people tend to think of me as, you know, someone who's, you know, can kick ass if necessary, whatever, and that my characters were like that way before I was, that I was, like, we were, back to what we were talking about, that I was thinking it by acting like I was that, but it impacted my real life. And so I was able to become more like my characters. So it's just been an incredibly valuable lesson all through my career. So I thought I would want to talk about that. Do you feel like you're you're done, your lesson is learned, um, you're not dying of politeness in any way anymore? No, 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 I don't. I still, uh, today, uh, realize later, I should have just said uh, that I do want coffee, you know, whatever, whatever it would be. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm still uh, pretty insanely polite. But, you know, I can't, I am able to fairly often now say the right thing in the moment <laughs> instead of thinking later. Oh, I wish I'd said, you know. I think um, that is an important lesson to, to, I think many people will relate to that wishing that you were able just to connect with your inner authentic wants and desires and just articulate them and never quite being able to. But um, as you say, lots of um, sort of lessons learned along, along the way. Somebody asked, I think they've managed to get let's see is it three questions into one but there we go why not um who is your favorite actor which was the worst to work with 
And do you have a new movie in the pipeline? Okay, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> I'm far too polite to say who was the worst that I would have uh, worked with. Um, it's a close tie between Susan Sarandon and Sam Jackson. We loved working with each other. We loved that movie. Uh, for both of us, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, potentially our, our, our favorite movie. And he, you know, he's, he's kind of my favorite co-star. Uh, this is nothing to take away from Susan. I mean, that it, it's like a little tiny difference, but, uh, but we just had such a good time making that movie. I mean, what a luxury of of <laughs> of choice to to sort of you know have what those two um, as, right. as, as the people you're choosing between. And what about um, do you have any more films in the pipeline? Oh, yes, I just shot a movie directed by Zoe Kravitz. It was her first directing job, and starring um, Channing Tatum. And I can't say the title because it's. Vulgar? Uh, um, I don't know if I should. This is live, right? Or it's, I don't know if I should say the name of the movie, but uh, you could Google Zoe Kravitz directing and find out what the name of the movie is. But uh, it's a thriller, uh, but I get to be very, very funny in the movie. It's a really fun character. So brilliant. So there's basically pumpkins and also this big movie on in the in the near and yes. the sort of slightly longer term future um, of yes. your of your life plan. Um, someone asks, and um, it's always an, an interesting insight into people's minds. Uh, this question: What book is your favourite book? So I suppose it's sort of like your desert island book. If you had to choose one, oh, well, it's a hard question. I I, I warrant. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the books that I've read the most, if you go by how many times I read them, uh, it's the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, which I kind of go to, go back to every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, if that's the measure, that's, those are the books. Is that to escape, escape into that world? Uh, not necessarily, but I love the, world that's created that that is you know this fictitious world is just so rich and uh and interesting but yeah i guess i want to visit it yes and um, just before we finish off i wonder if i could ask a question that um you, you've answered pretty much through throughout but just when you were writing um i wonder who you felt you were sort of i guess um reaching to who you wanted your reader to be to, to kind of take away from it because I know it's about you dying of politeness, but there's a great lesson, as I was getting to a little earlier, isn't there, for for people who are similarly struggling to kind of find that authentic voice. Right, right. Well, I, I think a lot of people, maybe most people, feel like they can't always be their authentic self, that they're sort of self-editing all the time or willing to give away their power in some circumstances. And I wanted to write it uh, for little me, you know, maybe for my daughter, but for, uh, to, uh, to talk about how important it is to be able to be authentic and to stop as much as, as possible giving away parts of yourself and, and, and you're giving away your power, um, to maybe even people who don't deserve it. Uh, you know, so, um, 
that's that was uh, the message that I wanted to get across. And that as rambling as my journey is, that uh, I, I've been able to uh, achieve it. And that that so in other words, that it's very important and, and achievable. Mm. Maybe your journey has been rambling, but as we know from knowing before we've even met you this evening and we've learned so much more from doing so and of course from reading your book um it has been an extraordinary journey and we're just so grateful to you for sharing an hour with us um to just tell us some of those wonderful stories of your life so thank you very very much for doing that and thank you very much um to everyone for joining us for that thanks yes thanks everyone thank you This episode starred Gina Davis and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The series is produced by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. Later this week, I'll be in conversation with one of my all-time favourite writers, the Booker Prize winner George Saunders. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.